I feel like this is almost home away from home. It's been a, a very warm welcome, although I do need to make a very sincere apology. My wife and I, as some of you know, are from Boston, uh, and we have brought the cold weather. Um, although, just to give you some encouragement, it is uh, 10 degrees uh, just west of Boston. That's 10 degrees below zero uh, this morning. So um, rest assured, there are those of us suffering in the north uh, much more. So uh, again, it, uh, I am honored to be here this morning to open up the word. Uh, and in honor, really, of your pastor, I'm looking at Genesis 1 uh, this morning. Uh, and like Blake, I believe that these foundational chapters of Genesis 1 to 3 are absolutely crucial to understanding the whole of the Bible. Patterns here of Genesis uh, are, in fact, echoed all across uh, the rest of Scripture. If you get these three chapters, the whole thing unfolds very straightforwardly. But it's not to say that these chapters are easy. So let me turn to the reading of Scripture, and I think it's your habit, as uh, is uh, the case across the globe and across time, that we stand as we read the Word of God. Stand with me. Reading aloud then from Genesis 1, 26 to verse 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> In this um, probably very familiar and surely famous uh, opening passage in Genesis 1, we come across the claim that individuals are created as bearers of the image of God. This is, if we scratch below the surface, the issue of personal identity. It's absolutely of critical importance in our day. We hear it all around. It is linked to a host of other related issues, our purpose, our dignity, even to human rights, I think. This morning we see in the depth of Scripture response to the definition that surrounds us in a secular age such as ours. So the first question we open with is, who, who are you? Who am I? How would you answer that question? It seems to me there's a, a confusion about that question in our time of immense importance. At first impulse, most of us might say we are what we do. Uh, or maybe where we've come from. And maybe if we really think about it, what story 
tells our lives. And so by way of introduction, let me just answer that question very briefly as we scratch the surface here. My wife and I have been in New England 40 years. It's a long time to be in one place. Mostly connected to Gordon-Conwell, that's where we got to know Blake and Ryan more than a decade ago. Jax was around, Peyton had just been born, Maisie wasn't yet on the scene. My ancestors did not come over on the Mayflower, so we are still 40, four, 40 years later outsiders uh, in New England. Uh, I grew up in a nominal Christian home, we would occasionally uh, attend that white large white steepled uh, church in the middle of town uh, that didn't believe anything, except, or so I was told, uh, it was a good place to civilize young teenage boys. I went to camp one summer time in high school and uh, saw a movie. It was a dreadful old movie, uh, but it scared the bejeebers out of me. It was called A Thief in the Night. And it presented God as a great big judge to whom we will all answer. I wasn't sure who this God was, but as I went on in that pilgrimage, I understood that God really was holy. God became very significant in my life, and to my friends I became rather unusual, odd, Confirming what Flannery O'Connor uh, once quipped, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. That was surely part of my experience. Historically, believing in a God who created us was absolutely foundation for affirming human dignity. But now when belief in God is lost, what of human dignity? If we are accidents of history, what does that mean for this elusive term, our human identity, our human dignity? It surely can't simply be achieved with our efforts, and it surely can't be seen through a telescope or a microscope. And so we ask, what is it? Where is it? And I want to suspect that this is the fundamental contradiction of our times. Our secular age wants us to believe that we are significant, but without any basis for believing in it. So let me keep that question alive and now return to our text at the beginning of the Bible. What does it mean that we are created as images of God? This little simple Hebrew phrase, Salem Elohim, the image of God. It's not an abstract principle, it's a straightforward, um, ordinary word, meaning simply a reflection, a representation, a mirror, if you will. What does it mean, asking that question of ourselves, if you look down deep into your heart, I think you answer that question, I don't know. I don't know what it means if I look just inward. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist offers that thoughtful glimpse into our identity in his book, The Road to Character, and he distinguishes between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the ones you put on your resume. They portray you as 
impressive. Your eulogy virtues are those things your family and friends will say at your funeral. Which ones matter the most? Surely, for most, it's the resume virtues. Our culture is fascinated with them. Portraits of ourselves that help us look better than we probably are. Often our resumes are attempts to control what people think of us. We are high achievers. We've got lots of credentials, lots of status, so we say. David Brooks writes, and I quote, We live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advertise ourselves and to master the skills for success, but gives us little encouragement to humility, a long-lost virtue in our age sympathy or even honest self-confrontation. He writes with brutal honesty now, I was born with a natural disposition towards shallowness. I now work as a pundit and a columnist. I'm paid to be a narcissistic blowhard, to volley my opinions, to appear more confident about them than I really am, to appear smarter than I really am, to appear better and more authoritative than I am. I have to work really hard harder than most people to avoid a life of smug superficiality. I've also become more aware, like many people, that I've lived a life of vague moral aspirations, vaguely wanting to be good, vaguely wanting to serve some larger purpose, while lacking a concrete moral vocabulary, even a clear understanding of what good is. I found those to be haunting words. Maybe. The question behind the question Brooks is after, captured in um, that old Broadway musical, a chorus line. Who am I anyway? Am I my resume? An eight by 10 picture of a person I don't know. That's the troubling question of identity. It seems to me that's the question of our day. So three points in this sermon this morning. The problem of creating our own identity Second, looking for identity in all the wrong places and finding then our identity in Jesus. The problem first of creating our identity ourselves. You know, one of the popular narratives that we hear in our time, you have to be true to yourself. It's kind of a redaction on the phrase I might have grown up in the 60s, do your own thing. Not sure what it actually means, but somewhere along the way it has come to mean truth is inside of you, that we create our own identity. To be authentic, a term bandied about a lot in our time, we must not repress our desires or our aspirations. Now, I don't want to dismiss that entirely at the outset here. We must take seriously the intuitions that often motivate our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. And if we are to have honest conversations, we must take them seriously. And there's a sense in which, rightly, I think, we all recoil about being defined by somebody else rather than ourselves. There's an intuition, isn't there? Like many of you, probably, I, I have dreamt about appointing spouses for my children once upon a time. But you know, um, it didn't go very far. And uh, I recognized that when it was time for me to choose a spouse, 
I didn't want my parents to choose for me. I wanted to choose myself, right? Because I know, I knew, or so I thought I knew, who I really was. My desires mattered. So that intuition lies for us, I think, uh, on the surface. Now, the deeper question we must challenge ourselves with, and our neighbors, our friends, I think, is the question, can we actually define ourselves when our desires and aspirations continually change day to day, month to month, year after year? What happens when we lose that great job? Or don't get into the school of our choice. We become fragile. We become lonely. We, we question who we really are. We become discouraged and isolated. Emotional trends deeply embedded in the current American character. Robert Putnam, the Harvard sociologist, wrote that wonderful book, Bowling Alone, now some two decades old. Bowling Alone in which he argued that research has showed Americans have slowly moved away from that which knit us together as communities. We no longer belong to bowling leagues. We bowl alone. He wasn't so much concerned about the rebirth of bowling leagues, but he was concerned about the way in which we've come isolated from each other. In particular, he argued that it's the churches that we have lost our community in. What's the point? The point, the result of trying to live up to the culture standards of religion, uh, a relentless achievement often leaves us feeling isolated and lonely. To shield the pain, we hide from each other. But if our Creator has made us to be in relationship, there's a sense in which when we turn inwards, we will implode. Now, Genesis 126 challenges, I think, this fundamental assumption that we are simply our desires or our aspirations. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Here is safety and significance found first and foremost in relationship in relationship to the one who made us. We do not create ourselves. We are created beings. We are images. As I said, this is a simple Hebrew term, simply reflecting something else, like a mirror. Our identity is entirely derivative from the God who made us. As a mirror's purpose or function is to reflect something or someone in its play. Our calling as image bearers is to reflect and resemble the God in his character and his actions, that we might be in fellowship with him and with each other. We simply weren't made to bowl alone. Now, if you jump ahead a little bit from Genesis over to the next book of the Bible, Exodus, in the 20th chapter, that's the chapter with the Ten Commandments, and in the second commandment, we find that we are not to make or worship any graven images. It's the same term, but now it's a false image. What's the rationale? Because there's only one image God has made, and it's here sitting before us. It's us. And so as we make other images 
supposing they will grant to us safety and significance, we actually degrade ourselves and the God who made us. This is the dynamic I think Paul's describing in Romans 1. As sinners, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, as if somehow that which is not ultimate, we can make ultimate by worshiping it. Now, I want to be careful here because we are called to delight in the goodness of the world God has made. It's just that it cannot bear the weight of substituting for God himself. It cannot fulfill our deepest yearnings. So, point one, if we cannot create ourselves, what do we do? Second, we find our identity in all the wrong places. Now, think about the way we're surrounded by a world of images in a digital age like ours. They, they are all pervasive. Exotic scenes of faraway places to have vacations. They tempt us, don't they? Or images of a shiny new car that promise increased importance and status. Spend a little time online on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook and you realize the pervasive tendency to post well-crafted images of yourself, of all the fun times you've had of late and none of the struggles. The making of images is not itself the problem. The problem is that subtle lie enticing us to believe that we will be fulfilled in them and by them. No matter how alluring, even addictive the images are for us, we cannot be in right relationship with an idol. For it will inevitably remake us in its image. A dangerous dynamic of idolatry. Our deepest longings are not going to be fulfilled by that exotic vacation. No matter how cold it is outside, no matter how much uh, warm weather there is somewhere else, it's not going to satisfy your deepest longings. And no matter how hard we want others to believe that Facebook version of ourselves, what Mark Lila, the sociologist at NYU, calls the Facebook identity mythology of our time, we cannot imagine ourselves into a different world. Yearning for safety and significance, then, is not wrong. That's not the point. In fact, that God-given longings tells us a little bit about ourselves and about the God who made us. The Imago Dei, the image of God, that longing for safety and significance is outside of ourselves. That's the point, isn't it? That we cannot create it itself, but we cannot find it in the created order. To restate the popular phrase, we're constantly taking uh, attempted to take a good thing and make it a God thing. It's a subtle difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. So only when we chase after the permanent, the good, the true, the beautiful, that is after God, do we find genuine safety and significance. We're saturated with worldly opportunities, even temptations towards things that can end up controlling us. But if we're committed to saturating our minds with this grand novel we call the Bible, this story that tells us where we've come from and where we're headed, we have some sense of who we are right now. 
Genesis 1 underscores this reality by affirming that at the beginning, not only is God the central actor in the drama of creation, He's the sole actor at the beginning. For in Genesis, God is the subject of every verb in that first chapter. God's the only one that does anything at the beginning. He alone speaks, He alone creates, He alone rests. Everything, in other words, is derived from Him. That's the uh, straightforward point as you read that text. Everything is derived from God, and this truth is woven through every verse in the chapter. I would suggest in every verse across the Scriptures. If we cannot find our safety and significance in the things around us, often we look to other humans in hopes of finding safety and significance in our attachment to them. Now, the clearest, I think, and one of the most persistent manifestations of this temptation is our worship of celebrities in a time like ours. Celebrities draw our attention because of their status rather than their substance. Now, I don't mean all famous people lack substance. It's just not what attracts us to them. The culture confuses celebrities with true heroes, those, as it were, with eulogy virtues. We are drawn to them because, to celebrities, because of their image. I've been watching, many of you probably have as well, this miniseries on Netflix, The Crown, reminded how incredibly famous Princess Diana was. The massive coverage, the media coverage of our death in August of 97. Now, there are complex reasons behind that, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I was struck the contrasting media portrayals of the death of Diana and the death five days later of Mother Teresa. We heard virtually nothing about Mother Teresa and everything about Diana. Why? Because she was a an image, a, a shiny image, and we wanted part of it ourselves. The fascination with celebrities has created what Christopher Lash, the, the great cultural historian of the latter half of the 20th century, has called the culture of narcissism. The culture is pervasive outside the church and unfortunately too often pervasive inside the church. And he asked the question, why are we attracted to celebrities, to those who are primarily in their image about themselves? We too often suppose, Lash argues, that our proximity to the celebrity communicates to us status or significance somehow. When we feel fragile and alone, identifying with somebody else who appears to have some status seems to communicate to us that illusion of status as well. Well, we know celebrities won't give you safety. They surely won't give you significance. But they're a uh, dim reminder that we are created to be in relationship with somebody else, with something outside of ourselves. We're drawn to that. So back to Genesis 1, the image we notice in this chapter is not shared with anything else in all of creation. None of the angels have it. None of the animals have it creation of man and woman here is the apex of this first chapter. 
the verb create, bara, occurs three times in this uh, really interesting verse 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created. Notice the dynamic between the singular and the plural. All too quickly, uh, the singular and the plural interwoven throughout this whole uh, section of the chapter. God speaks in the plural, let us, but he also speaks in the singular. He creates man, singular, but he also creates man and woman, plural. It's a kind of confusing uh, set of verbs unless you're cognizant that we are both individuals and individuals in relationship. So we are morally responsible in ourselves and we find ourselves in relationship to that which is outside of us. It's no accident, I think, that at the beginning, man and woman, male and female, are intended to communicate we are to be in relationship with somebody who's different. And that difference somehow comes together. We find out ourselves by bumping into those who are not like us, primarily and fundamentally God as well. What's the point? We are creatures called to love and called uh, for love. It is that relational character that we cannot finally get away from. And so if we cannot find our safety and our significance in the created order, in other humans, we often, I think, find it in what we do. But regardless of our vocation, there's a temptation to suppose that it will provide what we ultimately lack, a safety and a significance. There's a danger in all of the professions, whether it's the best intentions of a medical professional uh, dedicated to healing people, there's something uh, wonderfully virtuous about that, isn't there? Or uh, an aspiring teacher uh, helping young kids understand the world they live in. There's something noble about that, but they cannot be the ultimate source of satisfaction or significance. For what happens when the patient doesn't get well? Or increasingly in our day, when a doctor experiences the pressure of spending more time with paperwork than with patients. Or when educational systems deprive teachers of the resources required to work with students. There are frustrations that remind us that's not where we're going to find ultimately our significance. I remember my own time in high school thinking, and probably not uh, all that unusual, that I was going to become a professional baseball player and prove all my critics, mostly myself, wrong. But as with 99.9% of young kids with aspirations of becoming professional athletes, those dreams were dashed. And I had to rethink, where was I and who was I? Well, in each of these attempts to find ourselves in what we do, inevitably the world will remind us you can't find your significance ultimately there. In each of the attempts, the myriad of personal scenarios, and the list could go on, surely, right? We try to find the ultimate 
in that which is not ultimate. The problem is this, it's simply too great of a burden for us to bear, to create the ultimate from something that's not. Our desires constantly change as with the winds. We know that. We inevitably meet discouragements. And we ask ourselves, where then should we turn? Now, we'll be frustrated, as may the case, on either end of what I might call the identity spectrum. Which is simply, if we look inside, it's not going to be there. And if we look outside, we're not going to find it there. Both end in discouragement and, as Putnam has argued, in loneliness. So now we conclude, and of course, as you might suspect, with Jesus. I know Blake has taught you well. Everything at the end of the day, finally, is about Jesus. It is. We are hardwired to find our greatest delight in the one who made us. The creator enters into the story, our story, in the person of Jesus. The author, using that kind of metaphor, of this great novel writes himself in as one of the characters. He dies in our stead to take away the penalty for our own idolatry. We read that passage in Colossians 1 earlier in the service. Jesus is the image, the, the salem, uh, as the Greeks might have translated that uh, uh, Hebrew term. He is the image of the invisible God. He makes God visible to us, but he makes us visible to ourselves. He shows us what it means to be truly human. He is fully divine. He shows us God. And he's fully human. He shows us what it means to be human. Now, on and on we might go there, right? You know that. And so one final point. We need to be careful not to imagine Jesus is just like us. He is and he isn't. A little bit of a conundrum, isn't it? It's a genius, I think, of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, where the Christ figure is Aslan, the lion. We are reminded throughout Aslan is dangerous and compassionate. As you cannot tame a lion, so you cannot tame Jesus. You cannot control him. He will not be your idol. A transactional relationship with Jesus, you do this, Jesus, and I'll do... No, that doesn't work. It isn't the way we know the king of kings. It is all or nothing. Paul says at the end of the letter to the Corinthians, if Christ did not rise in the grave, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if the resurrection is true, and it is, it changes everything. It is the powerful proof that God has entered into our stories and is remaking us into the image of the invisible God, even Jesus. Jesus is the concrete expression of God's love. And in his death, we find life restored as rightful image bearers of God. And so I close with that 
really interesting quote from John Newton. Newton was the, we know, the author of that remarkable hymn, Amazing Grace. I am not what I ought to be, he says. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen and amen.